Welcome to Darkness Dwells Podcast, Episode 40. I am your host, Jason White, and you know what? My spidey senses are tingling again. Is there somebody here with me? The Shadow. <laughs> no! No, it's me, Michael Shutryan. <laughs> the Shadow always knows. <laughs> so how are you doing? I'm good. Um, I have had a spurt of uh, productivity in my novel edging that I talk about and it's never going to be released. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, things are going. Uh, how good. about with you? Uh, I've been busy, 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 as usual. Uh, things are good. I can't complain. Well, I always I'd say that I could complain if I wanted to, but I just try not to. Yeah, because, you know, nobody cares anyway, right? <laughs> they don't. You know, that really upsets me. I think that there should be, like, a like a hotline where you could just call and complain. Yeah, just people listening to you, bitch. Yep. And, and they pretend to care, at least. You know, yeah. with that whole nobody cares thing, I actually saw a t-shirt at Walmart that says nobody cares on it. I'm <laughs> like, wow, are we really all that, you know, insensitive to each other that if somebody has a problem, we're like, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually really sad. <laughs> it is sad, yeah. When you pointed that out. Uh, and it's on a fucking Walmart shirt. What the hell? Yeah, but that's kind of the, the home of people don't care. Yeah, it's it's really sad. Anyway, we have a big show this. Uh, this is episode 40. Number 40, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. And uh, we have... Uh, we have some big news too. Uh, we're going to get to in the new release or the in the new section, and uh, and I can't wait. Yes, you've been teasing me with this. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So uh, so this week we have uh, we have uh, author L. Bachman uh, joins me and. Uh, and we talk about uh, we talk about a lot of things. It was really interesting, uh, a really interesting talk that we had. And uh, after her, we are going to listen to a story by Rudyard Kipling, <laughs> and the story is Mark of the Beast. Yeah, I think that's a good cue to maybe uh, move things forward, and we will uh, we will start off with the news. I have a little. I have a little bit. Um, I did want to mention the sad passing of Angus Scrim. Yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners know. Yeah, that was. Yeah, he, uh, he played the tall man in the Phantasm movies, as well as the creepy polygraph guy on, on Alias, and he passed away at age 89 this last yeah. week. Um, and I was looking into him just a little bit. And I saw that uh, he is going to appear in the upcoming Phantasm Ravager, which is yeah. still scheduled to come out this year. So 
he did his filming for that, so he's going to be in that. Um, but I, I learned that Coscarelli isn't uh, directing that. I didn't know that. No, neither did I. I thought he was, actually. Yeah, David Hartman, who apparently does some, like, TV animation directing. He did, like, uh, Godzilla the series and Transformers Prime. He's yeah. going to be at the helm of, of this last one. Interesting. But, uh, and and th- it was weird because I looked up Angus Grimm and then, like, the news pieces built. I also just heard that J.J. Abrams is working on a 4K uh, restoration of the original Phantasm. Yes. And, and that's the restoration, not a remake, so don't anybody get excited about that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that would be exciting, though, if, uh, if somebody like J.J. Abrams was to <laughs> do a remake of that. That would just kick ass. Well, after you shared that um, that little article with me about Quentin Tarantino would like to make a really, really, really scary movie, that's kind of all I can think about now is, is Tarantino <laughs> at the helm of a horror movie. That would be awesome, too. I would just love to see Tarantino's style, um, you know, with his dialogue and, and, yeah, exactly. and all that. And, and have like a, I don't know, a monster movie or a ghost story or just something that's scary rather than full of action. Yeah. Um, and, you know, mobsters or, or cowboys. <laughs> a haunted house would do well because he writes really well with people kind of uh, together. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously the hateful age, but, you know, anytime somebody's in a, in a room together, you know, in, in Pulp Fiction or, you know, like the, the bar scene in, in, in Death Crew, that's when he really shines, I think that would be good. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I always loved his uh, movies and, and a lot for that reason. Um, but getting back to death, <laughs> this, oh, has yeah. been a re- this, is, this has been a really shitty week. Um, we didn't we didn't just lose Angus Scrim. We lost David Bowie. Yeah. And and Alan Rickman. Yeah. Just I know. I mean, they all they all surprised me. I mean, Angus Scrim was. 89, so not yeah. entirely out of the blue, but I did not know that David Bowie was sick, and I don't even know how Alan Rickman died at all, whether or not he was sick, or... Yeah, or he was sick too. He wow. had cancer. They, uh, uh, I don't know how... Uh, did Angus Scrim just die of old age, or did he have cancer as well? You know, I looked it up, and I don't know what exactly he died of, but uh, the report from Coscarelli himself was that he died at home in bed surrounded by his, his family and friends. So it was, you know, Natural whatever the, the cause, it was, you know, it was kind of prepared. It was peaceful. He was with friends. So Yeah. Well, it seems like cancer is kicking our ass lately. Um, it is. And it's, it's terrible. It's sad. We really got to do something about that. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Yeah. All right. So, uh, uh, do you have any more news for us? Um, I just wanted to mention that over on the website, This Is Horror, which you can find at thisishorror.co.uk, they're having their annual um, This Is Horror Awards, basically the best of for 2015. Um, so, I'd like to invite and encourage everyone to go on over there. There's lots of familiar names over there. Um, my latest short story appeared in Dark Moon Digest, and they are up for Fiction Magazine of the Year. Um, our friend Richard Thomas, whom I believe you are going to be interviewing very soon, um, he's up for an award. 
um, a couple films that are up for best uh, best horror movie are It Follows and We Are Still Here, which you and I talked about on the show. And our friends over at Crystal Lake Publishing are up for Publishers of the Year. So uh, got some got some friends up there. So yeah, that's really exciting. And uh, speaking of uh, of Crystal Lake Publishing, uh, we have a big announcement to make in regards to sponsorship. And what would that be? That would be that Crystal Lake Publishing is now a sponsor. Oh, that's awesome! Welcome it is aboard. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, welcome aboard. And, and uh, you know, if you don't know about uh, Crystal Lake Publishing at all, uh, I seriously uh, suggest you go check them out. They have they have a great list of authors. And also, speaking of Crystal Lake Publishing, um, their new their brand newest release is I hope I pronounce it right, Eidolon Avenue. Yes. which is a, a new story collection from Jonathan Wynn, and I'm hearing some really good advanced reports from that. Yes, so. and uh, we, we will get to that in a second. Uh-oh, um, I stepped on your toes. Nope, you didn't step on my toes. You just uh, you just actually made a good segue uh, to uh, our new releases, unless, of course, you have something else you'd like to discuss. Nope, I'm tapped. All right, so moving into the new releases for horror uh, literature... Uh, one thing that I kind of missed the boat on last week and I wanted to talk about is that Desmond Reddick from Dread Media, he released a book, and it's called Mother of Abominations, and uh, that came out on uh, New Year's Eve, I believe, and uh, I'm reading it right now, and it's a lot of fun. And, That's uh, a I'll, terrific fucking title. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually... Uh, the. He wrote a story for a an anthology that was sort of in this world. It's it, the subtitle is a Monster Earth novel, and the Monster Earth is is sort of like uh, the idea of like Keiju and and giant monsters uh, mm. <coughs> existing with us. And uh, excuse me. And uh, the uh, the anthology was sort of set in this world and. Uh, after he uh, submitted a story for them for that anthology, he had them on their show. I forget which episode. And uh, after that episode, or after that, after he talked to them for that episode, he, uh, they came up with a deal for him to write a novel for them, and he did. And here it is. And I highly yep. recommend people go check it out if you like. It's not really horror, but it is a, t- a shit ton of fun if you enjoy, you know, giant monsters. Uh, Keiju and all that kind of stuff. I highly recommend it, and I will, I will review it for the show at some uh, in the future, anyway. And that is Mother of Abominations. Yeah, Mother of Abominations, and that's by Desmond Reddick. Excellent. All right. So moving on to Permuted Press. Uh, we start with, uh, and this is, of course, is for January the 12th, approximately, anyway, of 2016. Uh, uh, we have, uh, Secrets of the Storm, which is the Rain Triptych, book number three by Brad Munson. We have Nash, uh, Washington, Dead City, book number one by Brian Parker. We have Casualties by Dev Jarrett. And that is that, because actually I went a little too far. That's in February. <laughs> but, Which is uh, coming up really fast. Already. Yes, 
very much so. Um, I, I'm used to like a huge list from these guys. Uh, now they only release like one or two books a month. It used to be like five or six. Yes, um, that's, that I, was before the great culling. Yeah, before they started cutting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, from Severed Press, we have, uh, let's see here, from January 4th, because I'm pretty sure I missed this week for these guys, uh, They Rise, a deep sea thriller by Hunter Shea. We have uh, Dead Ascent, uh, The Zombie Apocalypse, book number one by Jason McPherson. Uh, moving closer to our time on January the 11th, we have Serpentine by uh, Barry Napier. And we also have Escape from Dinosauria, which sounds cool. <laughs> Dino- yeah. From the Dino Apocalypse book number one by uh, uh, Vincenzo Biloff and Max Booth III. And we also have Battlefield Mars. I love Mars stories, so this one I'm probably going to check out. It's by David Robbins. And that is it for those guys. Moving on to Dark Fuse, uh, we have Nausea by Ed Kurtz. I, uh, I recommend people go buy that because, well, Ed, if you haven't been following Facebook at all, uh, he's been through a real hell of a time in the last year. Well, his uh his fiance committed suicide. Oh my god, I'm very sorry. Yeah, it was a ter- he's still healing from it. And uh to see he's got this book out now and he's getting something else published by uh Cheesine uh publications uh either very soon or uh or in the very near future. I should look that up, but yeah, Nausea looks like a very interesting book here. I'll uh, read the uh, synopsis for it. Uh, Since the night he made an ill-advised decision to commit a pair of revenge killings, Nick has made his living as a professional murderer. Early on, he dispensed with guilt or emotion, but after a routine hit gets messy, Nick gets sick, and the conscience he thought he killed along with a dozen other marks, comes creeping back into his brain. (laughs) So it sounds like a serious moral dilemma uh, story. I love Hitman stories. And uh, and I'm I'm looking at it now, and it uh, says that it's a dark noir novel. And you and I were just talking about noir novels. Yeah, before the end. Yeah, so that should be exciting. This looks really good. Ed Kurtz, Nausea. So check that out. And uh, last but certainly not least, we have Eidolon Avenue, uh, The First Feast. And that's by Jonathan Wynn, and this is from uh, Crystal Lake Publishing, our new sponsor. <laughs> and now, as we're, I, I gave this book to uh, Rocco, and he's going to review it for the show, I believe. Um, I'm going to read it because it sounds freaking awesome. And uh, here is the synopsis for this one, because it sounds like a really interesting uh, concept for a book, I think. Uh, Eidolon Avenue, where the secretly guilty go to die. <laughs> one, one building, five floors, five doors per floor, 25 nightmares feeding the hunger lurking between the bricks and waiting beneath the boards. The first feast... A retired Chinese assassin 
in apartment 1A fleeing from a lifetime of bloodshed. A tattooed man in 1B haunted by his most dangerous regret. A frat boy serial killer in 1C facing his past and an elderly married couple stumbling and wounded from 50 years of failed murder-suicide packs in 1D. (laughs) Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and finally... A young girl in 1E whose quiet thoughts unleash unspeakable horror. All thrown into their own private hell as every cruel choice, every deadly mistake, every drop of spilt blood is remembered, resurrected, and relived to feed the ancient evil that lives on Eidolon Avenue. Now, the concept for this book, I think, is really awesome. Because you got, like, five stories that sort of mingle into each other because... Each character lives on the same floor of this apartment building, and yeah, I, that's uh, that's a great great setup. I love frame stories like yeah, that. And, me too. Uh, I gotta say, I was really excited because I uh, I thought that I received a complimentary copy of this in my in my inbox, but it turned out it was the uh, advanced sneak at the cover, which which looks awesome. But I was I was really excited, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, on my on my list, I want to get to this soon. Oh yeah, me too. Um, I always wanted to write a story like this. Well, you, sh- you there's no better time than the present. New Year's resolutions and all. Oh God, there's so much on the plate though. <laughs> I don't like no. <clears throat> all right, so uh, that is it for the news and new releases. And right after these very important messages, we will be back. Like Darkness Dwells? Well, why don't you help out the show? Easiest way to do so is to sign on to your iTunes account, rate and review the Darkness Dwells podcast, and we will forever, forever love you for it. And as always, thank you for listening. With unmatched success since 2012, Crystal Lake Publishing has quickly become one of the world's leading indie publishers of horror and thriller books with a mystery and suspense edge. With stories, interviews, and essays by the likes of Wes Craven, Neil Gaiman, Jack Ketchum, Ramsey Campbell, Kevin Lucia, Jasper Bark, Mercedes M. Yardley, Mark Allen Gunnels, and Clive Barker, you'll want to dive right in. Crystal Lake Publishing www.crystallakepub.com 
Feel the cold grip of his presence. Sense the clammy excitement of his evil. Taste the sharp fear that he alone can bring. Dracula's blood. This way, gentlemen. We know the way. These men thought they had tasted all that life had to offer. Ready when you are, gentlemen. Would you be willing to sell your souls to the devil? If one thought that one's experience might be extended. It would be extended to infinity. There's something there. Dracula is back to choose his human victims. Alice. Who are you? How do you know my name? Dracula is back to select his companions in darkness. Who must die that he may live. If you shock easily, stay away. She's neither dead nor alive. Lucy! 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 Prepare yourself. Every nerve, every muscle. No. Prepare yourself for the greatest shock of all. Welcome back. All right. So this week, as promised, we have a special guest. Um, she is a new author uh, of uh, a novel called uh, Maxwell Demon, and she also designs book covers. And she's known as well for making book trailers. Welcome to the show, Elle Bachman. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. You're like the first person that actually really said my name right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's good. Actually, I was uh, while I was doing research on you earlier, I uh, I was listening to a couple of uh, of uh, podcasts that you've been on previously, and uh, and uh, oh my god, I can't! I I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so I, I guess you could say I got your the pronunciation of your name there. But it's also you know Bachman is like uh, Stephen King's uh, uh, you know his uh, his uh, name de plum you know his uh, yeah, pseudo name Bachman. yeah. So so I, I was kind of familiar with the name before. But uh, so uh, so tell us uh, where are you from? Well, I was born in Texas, and my dad is a Marine, so we moved, he got he was used to traveling around a lot, being in service, so we moved around a lot, but I grew up mainly here in Alabama. Cool. Um, so, you, you, I guess you did move around a lot as a child then. Oh, yeah. 
Did you uh, find it having, uh, or did you find having a lot of trouble uh, making friends while, while you know, living that kind of lifestyle? Um, yeah, I, um, I actually did the math once. My mom, she had never really done the math. And it, I did it, and it, I figured it out every two years, roughly. Mm-hmm. I was in a new school. Yeah. So I was perpetually the new kid. Oh, yeah. And it was very hard to fit in. I, I never knew, you know, who was okay, who's going to judge me, you know, how kids are and stuff. But, I mean, it, it, that, it's interesting that you asked me that because I've been talking for a while now about um, a memoir. I'm going to write a memoir, and I was going to talk about how that affected me, and it changed my views on things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess, uh, did you read a lot as a child? Um, when I was really young, I didn't too t- too much. Um, it, um, it wasn't until I was older and I really, I, um, really looked back on my childhood and, and reflected upon, you know, trying to figure out why am I the way I am. I don't know if how many other people do that, but I constantly try and understand myself in hopes of maybe being able to help others understand me. Yeah. And um, I realized that when I was really young, I didn't um, because, you know, in school, they're like, well, you have to do this. This is homework. You have to read. And I got where I didn't want to because I was being told what to read. Yeah. Because it never occurred to me until I was about nine or ten or eleven that, well, I can do my own thing, too. And that's, um, once I started getting older, I did read a lot. It was my escape, because constantly moving around, not having friends, you know, couldn't, we didn't have the internet back then, mm-hmm. so you can't just get online and anything like that, and I, w- I just, I stayed home, became a very avid reader, and then I came across a book called Interview with the Vampire mm-hmm. by Anne Rice. Yes. Of course, my parents were like, oh, vampires, you know, what's our kid getting into? But <laughs> when they realized it was just for my own entertainment, um, they got okay with it. And I started realizing, you know, I could probably do this. So she sort of was an inspiration to me as a, as a child to, to at least try. And then I, I met other people that were into her books, too, and liked to write, and I'm, I'm very grateful that I still, to this day, after, oh god, like 20 years, mm-hmm. almost 20 years, still being able to talk to these people, because yeah. that was when the internet was in the infancy, and, but it's, yeah, I, I still read, now I have a humongous library of books that I want to read, not being told to read. Yeah. <laughs> and I just loan them out. I'll have a friend be like, oh, have you heard this? I'll be like, I got four books on it. Do you want to borrow them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, I was a big Anne Rice fan, too, and uh, when I was younger. Uh, I loved uh, The Vampire Chronicles. I, uh, I remember when I was... Uh, uh, when I was in school, I was kind of hoping <laughs> that you, you know that the the whole thing isn't real, that vampires don't exist. But there's that little part of you that wished that it was real, and that uh, oh, yeah. that somehow you could find them and become one with them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I have I have some stories with that. I'll, I can I'll share with you um, off record. Uh huh. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, the appeal was forever young. Because even when I was young, I understood that one day I would not be here. 
Yeah. Something about that. And then the whole, I was a huge, huge history buff. So something about that living through history and passing it down really, uh, it really struck deep with me. Yeah. And it, it influenced my writings. The series, the Blasphemer series, mm-hmm. I began developing as a kid. Yeah. And it, it, that was part of, you know, what if you came across somebody and they had this knowledge that would just be earth shattering to you, you know, everything you know is not what you think it is. And that's, that's an underlying thing to the series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that was the initial thing. So would you say that Anne Rice was like a really, like, maybe, was she the, uh, uh, the writer who made you want to become a writer yourself? Well, she was one of them. She's definitely one of the bigger ones. Um, it's, it's, I can't really pinpoint an exact one. I, I think I might have said she was the one in past podcasts and interviews, but the more I've thought about it, it, it was more of a mixture. Uh-huh. Because I, I, I like, you know, Stephen King. He's a, he's a wonderful writer, but I've honestly not really ever really sat down and read one of his books. I don't need to because my husband is a huge fan of his and he tells me everything. <laughs> so it's, I know the books and I don't have to read them. Yeah. But I really liked a, a, a large variety of things. Um, my parents, um, religious beliefs um, was an influence. Um, a lot of history, uh, Egypt, Greece, my own heritage, um, which is a Viking. Cool. Uh, just all of it kind of meshed together and it. I was like, you know, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought because I looked over and my cat was doing something weird. Um, <laughs> it, it's more of a mesh um, but if I had to pick one, it would definitely be her. There's something about her that is just so elegant and classy that you just don't really see that much today, except for in the older generation of, um, professionals yeah. in this business and in other businesses where, you know, they're not out there to show you their T and their A and hope that you like them. It's, this is what they do. This is who they are. And, you know, it's, there's just something about her that's really appealing to me. She's very ladylike, and it's not just her as a writer that influenced me. It's just her, in general, how she handled things. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense, because uh, one one thing I remember really enjoying about her uh, her writing is the, uh, is the dialogue. I really, in, she would have, like, these long, sweeping conversations between characters, and uh, that's one thing I absolutely adored about her writing because you get swept up with the conversation even though you're not there. And the conversation didn't even have to be about the plot. <laughs> they would talk about, like, I don't know, witches or vampires and, and uh, like, with the Talamasca and whatnot. And, uh, I don't know, I just, I just love the conversations in those books. Yeah, they always seemed like there was more to the story. Yeah. Um, and to the characters with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's something that's 
subconsciously affected me and I can't get out of it. But I, I, I have seen that in my own writings. Yeah. Because to me, it's not, the story that I'm telling is not just the world that I've, I've built mm-hmm. for my characters. You know, it's, uh, and Maxwell, it's about the fallen angel and uh, his, he's on his mission to uh, save Lilith because of, um, I, I really don't know what you know and what you don't know because I don't know how much of what you uh, saw on the podcast or listened mm-hmm. to. But um, to me, it wasn't just that. So it, um, just the story that I was trying to tell. And that's why the the books that come after are more in-depth. Um, right now, I'm in the nearing the end stages of book two, which okay. is Harvest. Yeah. And I've already begun book three. Wow. And the short story that I have coming out soon um, is a character that's mentioned briefly in the series. He's not like a big part. You're not going to see him pop up, but he's spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my short that's called Human Ouija, I-, I couldn't think of a better name. Mm-hmm. I thought it fit. Anyways, um, it's about a guy named Oscar Sermons, and he's from this little town, and there's gypsies that live on the outskirts up in the mountains, and um, his wife has died six months prior to when this story takes place, and he he just can't move on because um, in in the very, I'm trying to word it properly so I don't give it too, too much away because it is a short story. Yeah. Um, he can't get over grieving. He just, he can't, he's, it's like the love of his life, and how he, uh, he's basically, he was on the phone with her when she died, so he heard her, you know, struggling, and hearing her die, and that affected him. Yeah. And, um, the whole story is, the whole, uh, theme to it is, you don't dabble with forces you don't know, or you don't understand. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't listen to the gypsies um, when they're telling him, you know, don't play around with this stuff. And he does anyways, because he's like, well, what harm can it do? And I think that that's, I think that's a lot of, uh, I can't find the right word, but um, for him, it it goes in a very bad direction. And I have mentioned him because of something that happens in my series. That's uh-huh. going to bring up the conversation of him. Okay. So, uh, can you can you tell us what the what the series is about exactly? Like, especially the first book, because the first book is out right now. Yes, it is. It's uh, on Amazon, Kobo. I mean, basically anywhere you can get a book. Yeah. You can get it, and it's in paperback. So, so let's uh, let's uh, share with the listeners what what the book is about, and uh, and I have a few more questions about the series too. All right. Um. I don't have the synopsis pulled up. I, sh- I was prepping, and for some reason, didn't occur to me. Yeah, no biggie. Back farther. Um, <laughs> in basic, basically, in the in my world that this series takes place, um, Maxwell is a fallen angel that was cast out of heaven during the clash of angels, mm-hmm. which is you know when Lucifer fell and all this. And his reason, because I explained that those that fought, they all had their own reasons for doing what they did, their own little agendas. For him, it was 
he had fallen in love with the first woman, Lilith, and they had had children, mm-hmm. and those children, of course, I don't, well, not of course, I don't know if you know, um, in the book, the Bible, the angels that had children with man, um, they were called Nephilim, the children, mm-hmm. and they were um, described as gods among men, and um, dangerous, and for me, um, and I think a lot of writers do this, they can't help but that creative creativity to turn. So for me, this is the, um, that's where vampires and the original werewolves come from. Okay. Amongst other um, legendary creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this story, it's about him finding her because there's a twist to it. Lilith, as her punishment, because you know Max, he got cast out, Hers was because she went into a rage. Um, I'm trying not to give too much away. She went into a rage, mm-hmm. and she she killed a lot of people, and a lot of bad happened. And her <laughs> punishment was to live forever in a constant reincarnated state. Okay. Um, until she understood that what she had done in her original life was bad, and the whole thing was um, as Max. He's trying to find her, and he can't. Um, always find her, or he gets there just as she's starting to die, because uh, he, he doesn't know what he's looking for. She's been a child, she's been a man, she's been, you know, she's been all these things. And I've actually planned to have a book dedicated to just her past lives, okay. as a request, because I've had so um, readers ask me, you know, well, you talk about these lives in the book, what about the other ones? Mm-hmm. And I've also planned another book of uh, all the adventures that Maxwell did when he basically wasn't trying to find her. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, the whole thing is him trying to find her. In this book, he does find her, and this is actually her last chance to prove that she she can learn her lesson. Mm -hmm. Or she was just going to be cast straight into hell and, you know, giving you enough time, you know, whatever. And her family, she's the original witch. And so her family of now is helping him. And hang on, I got a cough. Sorry. That's all right. Gosh, sorry. I'm trying. I'm got my mute real quick on there. Oh, that happens. Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah, it happens. But the whole the Maxwell demon is basically a jumping off story because what happens in this book sets the rest of the books off. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to spoil the end, but that's the key point of why the rest of the books happen. Um, I can say that uh, a very, very angry person um, that didn't get their way, thinking that all this time of waiting uh, was going to be beneficial to them, and it didn't work. Wow. Um, And so in Harvest, I introduced um, the Seers, Mm -hmm. and I described them as, uh, uh, in Greek mythology, they're called the Fates. Mm Mm-hmm. Past, present, future. That's what these seers are. And uh, um, when I was working, because I had I had some memories of my original notes yeah. from childhood and teen years on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing would be uh, if somebody really wanted to control what they wanted, wouldn't they go after people that could see the future or the past? So for me, that's the seers. 
Um, and you get to go into the mythical realm, which is um, mentioned in the Max and Adele, which is Lilith's um, current life. That's her name. And the Archangel Gabriel mm-hmm. travel through. Because I explained um, that when man became corrupt, all the majestic creatures like the unicorns and, you know, the stuff that are, are only myth now to us went to escape because man had become so corrupt and so um, uh, had strayed so far after Adam and Eve and all of that. Well, there uh, it's called the mythical realm. Mm-hmm. That's where they ran to. Okay. And it, that place is revisited in Harvest. Um, and I go into some things like the Croatoans. Okay, yeah. You know who I'm talking about? Yep. And uh, I go into some some other little things, but the book um, has characters from Max in it, a bunch of new, new people. Uh, there's no angels in it. Okay. That doesn't mean they're not going to pop up. Yeah. But later on, they're just not in this uh, step of the journey. Yeah. And in the third book, which is going to be called Ghosts, um, focuses more on the vampires and the werewolves, how they are with their own kind. Because up until book three, you see them with the witches, which is the kind of a main focus, but in three, you get to see them more in amongst their own. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their own kind. Ugh, sorry. No, no worries. Um, now, this sounds like, uh, like I really like the idea that, uh, that this, uh, this story has been with you pretty much your whole life. Um, how much, and also you're playing with, around with like a lot of, uh, a lot of mythology, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, religious beliefs. Um, so I, I am going to guess that this, uh, th- this series had a lot of, uh, research involved. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, I grew up in a household where my dad very Catholic. Mm-hmm. My mom is very Southern Baptist. Wow. They, they were kind enough to not tell me that I had to go, you're Catholic or you're Baptist. They made me, not made me, but they allowed me and my sibling to choose what was, um, I don't want to say right for us, but if you're doing wrong, you're going to know you're doing wrong. And um, I, I do thank them for that. They allowed me to choose instead of telling me what I had to do mm-hmm. as far as that. And um, so that allowed me to have um, an open-door policy of what books I could read on religion. Yeah. Um, and that really influenced me. Like, um, even to this day, for example, I have things, everything from books in, in Hebrew that I'm, I I've not read because I don't know Hebrew. Things in German. Um, I have a Spanish Catholic Bible. I mean, I I find something very beautiful about a holy book. Mm-hmm. And um, that's part of why I got the name of the series, the Blasphemer series. Yeah. Because I'm aware of what could easily be considered this stuff, but to me this is fiction, dark fantasy, a lot of gore, horror, um, 
but I think I'm doing it in a tasteful way. I'm not going, you know, this is wrong, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's more of just the world is a lot bigger than what you think it is sort of world. Yeah. Um, that plays with that, um, my character Dante, which is in Harvest, because you start seeing, oh, wow, vampires are real. What else don't I know? Because his, his, it's mainly focused on him, the second book. And he, his whole, his whole thing was he just painted. That's all he ever wanted to do. And his grandfather passing away, he was part of a group that worked very closely with witches and vampires. And, you know, anybody that was gifted, they took care of them, they sheltered them, they taught them their history. And when his grandfather passed, here comes vampire Hannibal basically blowing his whole world to pieces and going, no, you're wrong. Um, But I like to play on the the whole idea of, that I don't think you see very much nowadays. It's like, oh, you're a vampire. Well, I really like that. That's what we kind of see nowadays. It's, I know if I met a vampire and that was 100% legit, I'd be freaking out a little bit. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I love the whole idea of it, but they're, they're, when you're face-to-face with it, you're different. Mm-hmm. And I liked putting that in Dante. He's not your average, I'm brave, courageous hero type. Yeah. He's very cowardly. He freaks out. But it's understandable. Yeah. With what happens to, to so, him. So you were uh, discussing that you already have three books planned in this series. Do you... Do you I have... have um, well, there's Maxwell, there's Harvest, there's Ghosts. Ascend is mm-hmm. one. Descent is another. So there's about five or six. Wow. Originally there was seven or eight. And then I was like, well, I can't do it that, like, that way. Because as I started to write books started kind of smooshing together. Yeah. <laughs> so it, right now, it's about six for that series. And then um, I have the idea of the series that would be kind of like what happens in the world after. Because in this series, and I have mentioned it, um, the, the world changes. Basically, the apocalypse happens in, in the fact that the world as we know it in that series is going to be completely different. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you kind of have a, an idea of like I'm always asking people about series because uh, uh, because I don't know I, I have uh, I I don't know if I could write a series myself like the whole the whole idea of having a story arc. Um, so I think it's really cool when writers like yourself have an idea of where it's going. Um, so I'm glad you think I, I have more of an idea. (laughs) I'm just, I have a general concept and then I kind of hope I get there. Yeah, (laughs) of course. (laughs) So, uh, you have a short story coming out soon. Uh, this, this story is connected, right? Yeah. In, in the fact that Oscar sermons is mentioned, (coughs) um, because what happens to him in the short is similar to something that happens in book two. Mm-hmm. But um, in book two, it's only really mentioned. Um, Dante never sees for himself um, what has happened, but in book three, it's going to be more in-depth. Um, but that's when he Oscar is mentioned. Mm-hmm. I like the whole idea of the world being more than just the series. 
because then it, it keeps with the con the whole of there's more to the character than just the story. Mm-hmm. And um, when I had beta readers and other people that I had sent arcs to asking, you know, what about these extra lives and stuff, that, that really influenced me to, well, you know, what happens to these people from the mythical world? You know, what is their life beyond or now? And, you know, it, it's, it's sad. That's what Oscar is. He's just a mentioning, but he's a branch off into his own little story. Yeah. So, uh, where can people, when does it come out, and uh, where can people find that? Um, I do not um, have a, de- a date set for release. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned last year not to set dates. Um, yeah. Because I had planned on Max being a spring release, and then I got very sick, and then my son got sick, and my husband got sick, and it was just back to back to back, so I pushed it. So, um, I don't have a release date as of yet. Sorry. That's okay. Um, But I'd rather be like, I don't have one than, oh, it's coming out, you know, Valentine's Day, and then Valentine's come and gone, and it's still not out. Yeah. It is soon. Um, I'm fixing little bits, and then I'm sending it off to Kim Young, who is my editor, mm-hmm. and then it'll be done, because um, I do all the work myself. The only thing I don't do is edit, so it's not like I have to wait for people. Yeah. It's the only one I have to wait on is Kim. Which is actually a good segue into something else I wanted to talk to you about. Um, uh, I just want to know, how do you, how did you come into helping other authors out with uh, with book covers and book trailers? How did that, how did that come about? Well, um, for me, it, like with the writing, I started doing it as a kid to mm-hmm. give myself something to do and also kind of give me an escape from, you know, being a lonely kid. I did start doing art, um, and I got really good, or I thought I was at least very good, um, at digital blends and things like that. And mm-hmm. in 2014, I had... A book come out that I unpublished it. Um, that was just not the step I wanted to be my first step yes. into this world. Um, and I started thinking, you know, I really don't know this world. What can I do? I want to help. I want to participate. You know, I don't want to just be on the, the sidelines asking a thousand questions. I want to be in there, too. Yeah. And I was like, well, what can I offer? And then I started seeing people doing covers and offering services, and I'm like, wow, this is a really awesome community. They help each other. And I thought, well, I could do that. My art, I can do do something. I want to help. And I started doing this because um, I got very bored and I wanted to do something. Mm-hmm. So I just was like, oh, you need a ebook cover. I'll do it for free, and I had already knew the dimensions and stuff because of the book I had unpublished. Um, and then I got contacted by an author named Lindy Spencer, mm-hmm. who was needing a cover for an anthology that was a collective work of indies yeah. from all different genres, and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And I did that, and then maybe not even a month later, I started getting authors from that anthology asking me, hey, I really like what you did, and it just snowballed from there, and I started doing banners, so I'm like, well, if I'm doing the covers, I might as well just do the banners, too, and um, in my experience, I was like, well, I'm going to have to have a place to put all this stuff, (laughs) so I started a website, kind of, 
a blog. I'm not... I try to blog. call myself a blogger because it sounds all fancy, but I, um, I just... I do it more or less to help the community. Like, you, you're a podcaster. What you do is amazing to me. Um, authors like TJ Weeks, awesome. He helps in so much. Lindy's constantly helping me, mentioning me. Yeah. Um, there's Michelle Rob and Risa Blakely, and you know, just Kim, and my editor Kim. She, her, all of all of her clients, we kind of help each other. Oh, you need a blog post? Your release? Okay. And it's just this vast network, and I am, I, I like doing it because I know I'm helping. Mm-hmm. I've been there. I know what it's like to be on a budget. Um, time to time, I'll do something for free because someone is like, I really, I don't know if I can pay that. And I'm like, fine, I'll do it for free. I know you need it. Because um, for some of us, this writing is all we can do because of health issues. Um, or that's what they do for fun. And I understand that not everybody has the money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's what's appealing about mine is um, I'm not super expensive. Um, I'm also not very well known. Mm-hmm. It was only until like last week that I had a service site because um, originally everything was just on the one. And then a lot of people were like, "Oh, I didn't know you did it," so I, I separated it yeah. so it was easier. But to me, it's helping a community that. Not only am I giving to, but is giving back to me. And yeah. I don't think um, you see that very, very, very much. I know that there's um, some, some negative people out there. Oh, there always is. I avoid them. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky that I have not had to deal with it yet. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure someone somewhere Actually, is like, I'm typing up a, something hateful. But whatever. You know, the, the haters, Gives me attention. So. Yeah, the haters, they're out there. But uh, I don't know. Like, I've been uh, kind of mingling around within the same group of people that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, I find that they're kind of far and in between. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's not too many negative uh, people within. If if there are negative people, it, it might they might be within the readers. You know what I mean? Uh, because the the writers themselves, like, I'm not insulting the readers, <laughs> don't get me oh, wrong. No. I'm just saying, but the people who become writers and the people who are uh, handling themselves professionally, mm-hmm. uh, they they get somewhere because they oh, yeah. they know what they're doing, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. and so, well, it's, it's not so much that all of us know exactly what we're doing, we're just doing the best that we can with what we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I feel, I really want to do this, um, hang on, just... Uh, it, I'm sorry, I'm getting all emotional. Oh, don't worry. Uh, it's just, to me, it's so important. This really does give me something to do. Yes. And I I know how important that is for others. Because if you don't have something to do, you know, it's... It can really affect you. Yes. And it's not like we're going out and we're causing problems. And a lot of the writers are readers. Oh, yes. And, you know... We, we, I mean, I freaked out when I was compared to Anne Rice. When I saw Kobo do an advertisement and my book was next to hers, I cried. I mean, it's it's like the underdogs are we're getting ours and it, we're helping each other, you know? Yeah. And it's like 
Kendra Souter oh, yeah. of Burning Willow Press. Mm-hmm. When I started to get into this, her company was one of the ones that I was like, maybe I should do that. And then I was like, no, I don't have the money. You know, I don't want to really get involved. I want to kind of, it was, I was at that moment of should I, shouldn't I? And mm-hmm. I've gotten to do a cover for her just a few days ago. Oh, that's or, cool. Or a day ago. I don't know when this is going to release, so. But, yeah, and I was just like, oh, I got to work with her. And then it was her posting that led me to knowing who TJ Weeks was. And then from there, it's just being respectful really, really does help you. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because if you come at somebody like, oh, add me and blah, 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 and you, you, they have no idea who you are or where you're coming from, um, it can be a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, because people don't know what's going on, exactly. well, at least for me, I try to go, at least go, you know, like, when I message you, hi, you know, looking for this, and blah, 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 whatever I said, but it's, sorry, I think I trailed off. <laughs> no, no. But no, it's, it's, it's a place to be that helps you, and you can do something good. Exactly. And, uh, it's a really great community, I love it. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it's big too. <laughs> it's, you know, there's oh a God, lot of people. But, I just absolutely love that right now you're seeing movies coming out from books. Yeah. And some of those books are us, like our people are getting to that level. And it's just like, oh, maybe one day, you, you know, you get your little daydreams going. And it's, yeah. it's great. I yeah. think it's awesome. I, I, can't, I can't say that I ain't slightly jealous, but <laughs> I'm new. So I'm not expecting it to happen tomorrow, but it's, it's, I am so happy for those that are getting success and getting to that level, because it's, it's just so awesome. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm really happy to be a part of the community myself. Um, uh, It's actually, you know, it it feels very honorable uh, to be a part of it, and, uh, and, and, the reason for that is because everyone's so open and welcoming. There's not too many people out there who are snobbish, who think they're better than everyone else. Even even the ones who are you know are more successful than than the others. And that's that's the one thing I really love about this uh, community. I mean, you're gonna find as you go that uh, we don't always get along or, or agree on everything. But but when it comes down to it, where we go up to bat for each other, no matter what. I can agree. I mean, it, I, I, um, I, if, if somebody's posting something I don't like, I'm not going to get all super pissy. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, oh, how dare you? It's, I'm going to be like, okay, I see you. I see what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I like, you're helping me right now with this. I'm going to go and I'm going to post about you. And anytime anybody needs help, I'll be like, hey, here's a podcast. Because that's what TJ did for me. I was talking to him, like, hey, I've been on your stuff. Do you know anybody that needs an author? I'm really in some need. i got stuff coming out. You know, and that's, he helped me. You're helping me. I help both of you guys. And as much as I'm allowed. And then, I mean, it's a really, really, really cool web. Yeah. That we've all built for each other. Because then I can go, well, well, Kendra's got um, Burning Willow. They've got uh, anthologies, and they're looking for authors. And uh-huh. 
plug. Sorry, I, I that came out without me realizing what I was doing. No, um, sorry about it. <laughs> or uh, oh, I know an editor, and they're they're looking for people or whatever. It's just it's it's just really nice how that works. Yeah, yeah. I've had both uh, TJ and Kendra on the show before, and they're uh, they're both awesome people. So, Kendra uh, and her husband are super, super nice people. Yeah, Kendra and Ed, I love them. Uh, Ed's always tagging me in, on Facebook, and, and he always tags me uh, and on Instagram, too. And he always tags me on the coolest posts. I love it. <laughs> uh, so we're, uh, we're running out of time. Um, okay. Let me, uh, or uh, where, can, uh, where can our listeners find you on the Internet if they want to shoot you a letter and say, Hey, how's it going? Um, I enjoyed your um, book. I'm I'm all over the place, but if you really want to catch me a lot quick, um, real really quick, sorry, Twitter, um, mm-hmm. I'm on there, author L Bachman. Um, I do have a Facebook page, um, and you can look up L Bachman and find me. The Blasphemer series has its own page. Bachman's Blasphemers um, is actually a group I started for people that like the stories, like what I'm doing. It's a collective of family, friends, you know, mm-hmm. co-workers, other writers, you know. <laughs> I like that. I like that name. Podcasters, it's just... I like that mm-hmm. name, Bachman's uh, Blasphemers. <laughs> That's cool. I didn't know. I knew I needed something. Yeah. I was like, oh... Everybody's got all these great names. It's no, so clever. Oh, and then I was just like, oh... No, that's clever. Yeah. That'll draw but, people in. But, yeah. And I do have a website, and you can find it. I don't want to say it and then get it wrong, and then everybody go off to some 404 error, error. <laughs> Actually, it, <laughs> but, it, is, um, it is easy to find, uh, because I found right. it. Uh, just, just Google L. Bachman. And that's, oh, yeah. Google me. I'm yeah. all over the place. And that's Bachman, spelt like... Uh, B-A-C-H-M-A-N. Yep. And uh, it pops right up. It's right there. Mm-hmm. First one, which is also good. Yes, it is. <laughs> and then you go to my website, and you can see past, um, past podcasts. Like, this one's going to end up over there. Yeah. I have a YouTube channel where all of my... Anybody that's ever mentioned to me that I found out about goes there. Like, I did the, um, the, op- the opening um, for a real-life buddy of mine's youtube channel he mentioned as a thank you so i added it and i mean it's a lot's there a lot sorry don't get overwhelmed <laughs> well, i was i was uh, i was creeping that uh for a while today so there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff there and it's really interesting so uh so i gotta go okay and uh i just want to thank you for being on the show you're a really interesting thank you. person thank you and uh, i can't wait to dive into your into your world and I hope to have you on the show oh, again, real soon. The uh, <laughs> no. Well, I, actually, I actually just recently was like, uh, I, I'm, I actually do get scared pretty easily, which surprises people because I write horror and I'm like, that's how I get over it. Yeah, like, I confront it and I write stuff that freaks me out. Oh, well, that's that's a funny thing actually because that before I like before we go, yes. I just want to actually that's a good topic because a lot of people who don't write horror don't get that because uh a lot of people think that we're just twisted individuals and we are twisted but there's a reason why we're twisted it's because uh the things that that we're being accused of being twisted for are the things that they actually touch us and they they disturb us that's why we write about it because yeah. uh because it affects us in some way and uh a lot of its fears yes exactly 
Like, I am completely freaked out by the movie The Exorcist. Oh, yeah. And today, when I was on Twitter checking to see who had added me back, somebody with that, the, the chick's face. Yeah. Is their icon? I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> backspace, backspace, because it completely freaks me out. Yeah. Even though I write about people being possessed and demons in my stuff, that completely freaks me out. Yes. All right, well, uh, It's think... probably the same thing for people who freak out by clowns. Oh, yeah. Anyways, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, thank you for being on the show. And uh, uh, when when your uh, second book comes out, uh, mm-hmm. we will have you on again, and we'll talk about Thanks. this more. Anytime, I'm flexible. I like talking about horror and genres and paranormal, supernatural. Just pop me a message. No problem. What you, Rudyard fucking Kipling? Yes, yes, we are Rudyard fucking Kipling, and why is that? Because we have Rudyard in the house. And here is a uh, uh, his short story, Mark of the Beast, and it is read by oh I can't remember he says his name, and it's but it's from LibriVox, and uh, I usually play LibriVox stories. I used to read them myself, but I don't anymore because it takes up way too much time, and so I really appreciate uh, LibriVox and everyone who donates their time and their voice talents. So let's dig in. Mark of the Beast. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by William Kuhn. November 2006. The Mark of the Beast by Rudyard Kipling. Your gods and my gods, do you or I know which are the stronger? Native proverb. East of Suez, some hold, the direct control of providence ceases, man being there handed over to the power of the gods and devils of Asia, and the Church of England providence only exercising an occasional and modified supervision in the case of Englishmen. This theory accounts for some of the more unnecessary horrors of life in India. It may be stretched to explain my story. My friend Strickland of the police, who knows as much of natives of India as is good for any man, can bear witness to the facts of the case. Dumoise, our doctor, also saw what Strickland and I saw. The inference which he drew from the evidence was entirely incorrect. He is dead now. He died in a rather curious manner, which has been elsewhere described. When Fleet came to India, he owned a little money and some land in the Himalayas, near a place called Dharmzala. Both properties had been left him by an uncle, and he came out to finance them. He was a big, heavy, genial, and inoffensive man. His knowledge of natives was, of course, limited, and he complained of the difficulties of the language. He rode in from his place in the hills to spend New Year in the station, and he stayed with Strickland. On New Year's Eve there was a big dinner at the club, and the night was excusably wet. When men foregather from the utmost ends of the empire, they have a right to be riotous. The frontier had sent down a contingent of catch-em-alive-os who had not seen twenty white faces for a year, and were used to ride fifteen miles to dinner at the next fort 
at the risk of a Kybury bullet where their drinks should lie. They profited by their new security, for they tried to play pool with a curled-up hedgehog found in the garden, and one of them carried the marker round the room in his teeth. Half a dozen planters had come in from the south and were talking horse to the biggest liar in Asia, who was trying to cap all their stories at once. Everybody was there, and there was a general closing up of ranks and taking stock of our losses in dead or disabled that had fallen during the past year. It was a very wet night, and I remember that we sang Old Lang Syne with our feet in the Polo Championship Cup and our heads among the stars, and swore that we were all dear friends. Then some of us went away and annexed Burma. And some tried to open up the Sudan and were opened up by fuzzies in that cruel scrub outside Swakim, and some found stars and medals, and some were married, which was bad, and some did other things which were worse, and the others of us stayed in our chairs and strove to make money on insufficient experiences. Fleet began the night with sherry and bitters, drank champagne steadily up to dessert. Then raw, rasping Capri with all the strength of whiskey, took Benedictine with his coffee, four or five whiskies and sodas to improve his pool strokes, beer and bones at half past two, winding up with old brandy. Consequently, when he came out at half past three in the morning, into fourteen degrees of frost, he was very angry with his horse for coughing, and tried to leapfrog into the saddle. The horse broke away and went to his stables. So Strickland and I formed a guard of dishonor to take Fleet home. Our road lay through the bazaar, close to a little temple of Hanuman, the monkey god, who was a leading divinity worthy of respect. All gods have good points, just as have all priests. Personally, I attach much importance to Hanuman, and am kind to his people, the great gray apes of the hills. One never knows when one may want a friend. There was a light in the temple, and as we passed, we could hear voices of men chanting hymns. In a native temple, the priests rise at all hours of the night to do honor to their god. Before we could stop him, Fleet dashed up the steps, patted two priests on the back, and was gravely grinding the ashes of his cigar butt into the forehead of the redstone image of Hanuman. Strickland tried to drag him out, but he sat down and said solemnly. Shilat, mark of the beast, I made it. Isn't it fine? In half a minute, the temple was alive and noisy, and Strickland, who knew what came of polluting gods, said that things might occur. He, by virtue of his official position, long resided in the country, and weakness for going among the natives was known to the priests, and he felt unhappy. Fleet sat on the ground and refused to move. He said that good old Hanuman. Made a very soft pillow. Then, without any warning, a silver man came out of a recess behind the image of the god. He was perfectly naked in that bitter, bitter cold, and his body shone like frosted silver, for he was what the Bible calls a leper as white as snow. Also, he had no face because he was a leper of some years' standing, and his disease was heavy upon him. We too stooped to haul Fleet up, and the temple was filling and filling with folk who seemed to spring from the earth, when the silver man ran in under our arms, making a noise exactly like the mewing of an otter, 
caught Fleet round the body, and dropped his head on Fleet's breast before we could wrench him away. Then he retired to a corner and sat mewing while the crowd blocked all the doors. The priests were very angry until the silver man touched Fleet. That nuzzling seemed to sober them. At the end of a few minutes' silence, one of the priests came to Strickland and said in perfect English, Take your friend away. He has done with Hanuman, but Hanuman has not done with him. The crowd gave room and we carried Fleet into the road. Strickland was very angry. He said that we might all three have been knifed and that Fleet should thank his stars that he had escaped without injury. Fleet thanked no one. He said that he wanted to go to bed. He was gorgeously drunk. We moved on, Strickland silent and wrathful, until Fleet was taken with violent shivering fits and sweating. He said that the smells of the bazaar were overpowering, and he wondered why slaughterhouses were permitted so near English residences. Can't you smell the blood? said Fleet. We put him to bed at last, just as the dawn was breaking, and Strickland invited me to have another whiskey and soda. While we were drinking, he talked of the trouble in the temple and admitted that it baffled him completely. Strickland hates being mystified by natives because his business in life is to overmatch them with their own weapons. He has not yet succeeded in doing this, but in fifteen or twenty years he will have made some small progress. They should have mauled us, he said, instead of mewing at us. I wonder what they meant. I don't like it one little bit. I said that the managing committee of the temple would in all probability bring a criminal action against us for insulting their religion. There was a section of the Indian penal code which exactly met Fleet's offense. Strickland said he only hoped and prayed that they would do this. Before I left, I looked into Fleet's room and saw him lying on his right side, scratching his left breast. Then I went to bed, cold, depressed, and unhappy, at seven o'clock in the morning. At one o'clock I rode over to Strickland's house to inquire after Fleet's head. I imagined that it would be a sore one. Fleet was breakfasting and seemed unwell. His temper was gone, for he was abusing the cook for not supplying him with an underdone chop. A man who can eat raw meat after a wet night is a curiosity. I told Fleet this and he laughed. You breed queer mosquitoes in these parts, he said. I've been bitten to pieces, but only in one place. Let's have a look at the bite, said Strickland. It may have gone down since this morning. While the chops were being cooked, Fleet opened his shirt and showed us, just over his left breast, a mark, the perfect double of the black rosettes, the five or six irregular blotches arranged in a circle, on a leopard's hide. Strickland looked and said, It was only pink this morning. It's grown black now. Fleet ran to a glass. By Jove, he said, this is nasty. What is it? We could not answer. Here the chops came in, all red and juicy, and Fleet bolted three in a most offensive manner. He ate on his right grinders only and threw his head over his right shoulder as he snapped the meat. When he had finished, it struck him that he had been behaving strangely, for he said apologetically, I don't think I ever felt so hungry in my life. I've bolted like an ostrich. After breakfast, Strickland said to me, Don't go. 
Stay here and stay for the night. Seeing that my house was not three miles from Strickland's, this request was absurd. But Strickland insisted and was going to say something when Fleet interrupted by declaring in a shamefaced way that he felt hungry again. Strickland sent a man to my house to fetch over my bedding and a horse, and we three went down to Strickland's stables to pass the hours until it was time to go out for a ride. The man who has a weakness for horses never wearies of inspecting them, and when two men are killing time in this way, they gather knowledge and lies the one from the other. There were five horses in the stables, and I shall never forget the scene as we tried to look them over. They seemed to have gone mad. They reared and screamed and nearly tore up their pickets. They sweated and shivered and lathered and were distraught with fear. Strickland's horses used to know him as well as his dogs, which made the matter more curious. We left the stable for fear of the brutes throwing themselves in their panic. Then Strickland turned back and called me. The horses were still frightened, but they let us gentle and make much of them and put their heads in our bosoms. They aren't afraid of us, said Strickland. Do you know? I'd give three months' pay if Outrage here could talk. But Outrage was dumb and could only cuddle up to his master and blow out his nostrils, as is the custom of horses when they wish to explain things but can't. Fleet came up when they were in the stalls, and as soon as the horses saw him, their fright broke out afresh. It was all that we could do to escape from the place unkicked. Strickland said, They don't seem to love you, Fleet. Nonsense, said Fleet. My mare will follow me like a dog. He went to her. She was in a loose box, but as he slipped the bar, she plunged, knocked him down, and broke away into the garden. I laughed, but Strickland was not amused. He took his mustache in both fists and pulled at it till it nearly came out. Fleet, instead of going off to chase his property, yawned, saying that he felt sleepy. He went to the house to lie down, which was a foolish way of spending New Year's Day. Strickland sat with me in the stables and asked if I had noticed anything peculiar in Fleet's manner. I said that he ate his food like a beast. But that this might have been the result of living alone in the hills out of the reach of society as refined and elevating as ours, for instance. Strickland was not amused. I do not think that he listened to me, for his next sentence referred to the mark on Fleet's breast, and I said that it might have been caused by blister flies, or that it was possibly a birthmark, newly born and now visible for the first time. We both agreed that it was unpleasant to look at, and Strickland found occasion to say that I was a fool. I can't tell you what I think now, he said, because you would call me a madman. But you must stay with me for the next few days if you can. I want you to watch Fleet, but don't tell me what you think till I have made up my mind. But I am dining out tonight, I said. So am I, said Strickland, and so is Fleet, at least if he doesn't change his mind. We walked about the garden smoking, but saying nothing. Because we were friends and talking spoils good tobacco, till our pipes were out. Then we went to wake up Fleet. He was wide awake and fidgeting about his room. I say, I want some more chops, he said. Can I get them? We laughed and said, Go and change. The ponies will be round in a minute. All right, said Fleet. I'll go when I get the chops. Underdone ones, mind. He seemed to be quite in earnest.
It was four o'clock, and we had had breakfast at one. Still, for a long time, he demanded those underdone chops. Then he changed into riding clothes and went out into the veranda. His pony, the mare had not been caught, would not let him come near. All three horses were unmanageable, mad with fear, and finally Fleet said that he would stay at home and get something to eat. Strickland and I rode out, wondering. As we passed the temple of Hanuman, the silver man came out and mewed at us. He is not one of the regular priests of the temple," said Strickland. "I think I should peculiarly like to lay my hands on him." There was no spring in our gallop on the racecourse that evening. The horses were stale and moved as though they had been ridden out. The fright after breakfast has been too much for them," said Strickland. That was the only remark he made through the remainder of the ride. Once or twice, I think he swore to himself, but that did not count. We came back in the dark at seven o'clock and saw that there were no lights in the bungalow. Careless ruffians, my servants are," said Strickland. My horse read at something on the carriage drive, and Fleet stood up under its nose. "What are you doing, groveling about the garden?" said Strickland. But both horses bolted and nearly threw us. We dismounted by the stables and returned to Fleet, who was on his hands and knees under the orange bushes. What the devil's wrong with you? said Strickland. Nothing, nothing in the world," said Fleet, speaking very quickly and thickly. "I've been gardening, botanizing, you know. The smell of the earth is delightful. I think I'm going for a walk, a long walk, all night. Then I saw that there was something excessively out of order somewhere, and I said to Strickland, "I am not dining out." Bless you. Said Strickland, "Here, Fleet, get up. You'll catch fever there. Come into dinner and let's have the lamps lit. We'll all dine at home." Fleet stood up unwillingly and said, "No lamps, no lamps. It's much nicer here. Let's dine outside and have some more chops. Lots of 'em and underdone, bloody ones with gristle." Now a December evening in northern India is bitterly cold, and Fleet's suggestion was that of a maniac. Come in," said Strickland sternly. "Come in at once." Fleet came, and when the lamps were brought, we saw that he was literally plastered with dirt from head to foot. He must have been rolling in the garden. He shrank from the light and went to his room. His eyes were horrible to look at. There was a green light behind them, not in them, if you understand. And the man's lower lip hung down. Strickland said. There is going to be trouble, big trouble tonight. Don't you change your writing things. We waited and waited for Fleet's reappearance and ordered dinner in the meantime. We could hear him moving about his own room, but there was no light there. Presently, from the room came the long-drawn howl of a wolf. People write and talk lightly of blood running cold and hair standing up and things of that kind. Both sensations are too horrible to be trifled with. My heart stopped as though a knife had been driven through it, and Strickland turned as white as the tablecloth. The howl was repeated and was answered by another howl far across the fields. That set the gilded roof on the horror. Strickland dashed into Fleet's room. I followed, and we saw Fleet getting out of the window. He made beast noises in the back of his throat. 
He could not answer us when we shouted at him. He spat. I don't quite remember what followed, but I think that Strickland must have stunned him with the long bootjack, or else I should never have been able to sit on his chest. Fleet could not speak. He could only snarl, and his snarls were those of a wolf, not of a man. The human spirit must have been giving way all day and have died out with the twilight. We were dealing with a beast that had once been Fleet. The affair was beyond any human and rational experience. I tried to say hydrophobia, but the word wouldn't come because I knew that I was lying. We bound this beast with leather thongs of the punka rope and tied its thumbs and big toes together and gagged it with a shoehorn, which makes a very efficient gag if you know how to arrange it. Then we carried it into the dining room and sent a man to Demoise, the doctor, telling him to come over at once. After we had dispatched the messenger and were drawing breath, Strickland said, "It's no good. This isn't any doctor's work." I also knew that he spoke the truth. The beast's head was free, and it threw it about from side to side. Anyone entering the room would have believed that we were curing a wolf's pelt. That was the most loathsome accessory of all. Strickland sat with his chin in the heel of his fist, watching the beast as it wriggled on the ground, but saying nothing. The shirt had been torn open in the scuffle and showed the black rosette mark on the left breast. It stood out like a blister. In the silence of the watching, we heard something without mewing like a she otter. We both rose to our feet, and I answer for myself, not Strickland, felt sick, actually and physically sick. We told each other, as did the men in Pinafore, that it was the cat. Dumas arrived, and I never saw a little man so unprofessionally shocked. He said that it was a heart-rending case of hydrophobia, and that nothing could be done. At least any palliative measures would only prolong the agony. The beast was foaming at the mouth. Fleet, as we told Dumas, had been bitten by dogs once or twice. Any man who keeps half a dozen terriers must expect a nip now and again. Dumas could offer no help. He could only certify that Fleet was dying of hydrophobia. The beast was then howling, for it had managed to spit out the shoehorn. Dumas said that he would be ready to certify to the cause of death. And that the end was certain. He was a good little man, and he offered to remain with us. But Strickland refused the kindness. He did not wish to poison Demoise's New Year. He would only ask him not to give the real cause of Fleet's death to the public. So Demoise left, deeply agitated. And as soon as the noise of the cartwheels had died away, Strickland told me in a whisper his suspicions. They were so wildly improbable that he dared not say them out aloud. And I, who entertained all Strickland's beliefs, was so ashamed of owning to them that I pretended to disbelieve. Even if the Silver Man had bewitched Fleet for polluting the image of Hanuman, the punishment could not have fallen so quickly. As I was whispering this, the cry outside the house rose again, and the beast fell into a fresh paroxysm of struggling until we were afraid that the thongs that held it would give way. Watch," said Strickland. "If this happens six times, I shall take the law into my own hands. I order you to help me." He went into his room and came out in a few minutes with the barrels of an old shotgun, a piece of fishing line, some thick cord, and his heavy wooden bedstead. 
I reported that the convulsions had followed the cry by two seconds in each case, and the beast seemed perceptibly weaker. Strickland muttered, But he can't take away the life. He can't take away the life. I said, though I knew that I was arguing against myself, It may be a cat. It must be a cat. If the silver man is responsible, why does he dare to come here? Strickland arranged the wood on the hearth, put the gun barrels into the glow of the fire, spread the twine on the table, and broke a walking stick in two. There was one yard of fishing line, gut, lapped with wire, such as is used for manseer fishing, and he tied the two ends together in a loop. Then he said, How can we catch him? He must be taken alive and unhurt. I said that we must trust in providence and go out softly with polo sticks into the shrubbery at the front of the house. The man or animal that made the cry was evidently moving round the house as regularly as a night watchman. We could wait in the bushes till he came by and knock him over. Strickland accepted the suggestion, and we slipped out from a bathroom window into the front veranda and then across the carriage drive into the bushes. In the moonlight we could see the leper coming round the corner of the house. He was perfectly naked, and from time to time he mewed and stopped to dance with his shadow. It was an unattractive sight, and thinking of poor Fleet, brought to such degradation by so foul a creature, I put away all my doubts and resolved to help Strickland from the heated gun barrels to the loop of twine, from the loins to the head and back again, with all tortures that might be needful. The leper halted in the front porch for a moment, and we jumped out on him with the sticks. He was wonderfully strong, and we were afraid that he might escape or be fatally injured before we caught him. We had an idea that lepers were frail creatures, but this proved to be incorrect. Strickland knocked his legs from under him, and I put my foot on his neck. He mewed hideously, and even through my riding boots I could feel that his flesh was not the flesh of a clean man. He struck at us with his hand and feet stumps. We looped the lash of a dog whip around him under the armpits and dragged him backwards into the hall and so into the dining room where the beast lay. There we tied him with trunk straps. He made no attempt to escape, but mewed. When we confronted him with the beast, the scene was beyond description. The beast doubled backwards into a bow as though he had been poisoned with strychnine and moaned in the most pitiable fashion. Several other things happened also, but they cannot be put down here. I think I was right, said Strickland. Now we will ask him to cure this case. But the leper only mewed. Strickland wrapped a towel round his hand and took the gun barrels out of the fire. I put the half of the broken walking stick through the loop of the fishing line and buckled the leper comfortably to Strickland's bedstead. I understood then how men and women and little children can endure to see a witch burnt alive, for the beast was moaning on the floor, and though the silver man had no face, you could see horrible feelings passing through the slab that took its place, exactly as waves of heat play across red-hot iron, gun barrels, for instance. Strickland shaded his eyes with his hands for a moment, and we got to work. This part is not to be printed. The dawn was beginning to break when the leper spoke. His mewings had not been satisfactory up to that point. The beast had fainted from exhaustion, and the house was very still. 
We unstrapped the leper and told him to take away the evil spirit. He crawled to the beast and laid his hand upon the left breast. That was all. Then he fell face down and whined, drawing in his breath as he did so. We watched the face of the beast and saw the soul of Fleet coming back into the eyes. Then a sweat broke out on the forehead and the eyes, they were human eyes, closed. We waited for an hour but Fleet still slept. We carried him to his room and bade the leper go, giving him the bedstead and the sheet on the bedstead to cover his nakedness, the gloves and the towels with which we had touched him, and the whip that had been hooked around his body. He put the sheet about him and went out into the early morning without speaking or mewing. Strickland wiped his face and sat down. A night gong, far away in the city, made seven o'clock. Exactly four and twenty hours, said Strickland, and I've done enough to ensure my dismissal from the service, besides permanent quarters in a lunatic asylum. Do you believe that we are awake? The red hot gun barrel had fallen on the floor and was singeing the carpet. The smell was entirely real. That morning at eleven, we two together went to wake up Fleet. We looked and saw that the black leopard rosette on his chest had disappeared. He was very drowsy and tired, but as soon as he saw us, he said, Oh, confound you fellows. Happy New Year to you. Never mix your liquors. I'm nearly dead. Thanks for your kindness, but you're over time, said Strickland. Today is the morning of the second. You've slept the clock round with a vengeance. The door opened, and little Dumois put his head in. He had come on foot. And fancied that we were laying out fleet. I brought a nurse, said Dumoise. I suppose that she can come in for what is necessary? By all means, said Fleet cheerily, sitting up in bed. Bring on your nurses. Dumoise was dumb. Strickland led him out and explained that there must have been a mistake in the diagnosis. Dumoise remained dumb and left the house hastily. He considered that his professional reputation had been injured and was inclined to make a personal matter of the recovery. Strickland went out too. When he came back, he said that he had been to call on the temple of Hunaman to offer redress for the pollution of the god and had been solemnly assured that no white man had ever touched the idol and that he was an incarnation of all the virtues laboring under a delusion. What do you think? said Strickland. I said, There are more things. But Strickland hates that quotation. He says that I have worn it threadbare. One other curious thing happened which frightened me as much as anything in all the night's work. When Fleet was dressed, he came into the dining room and sniffed. He had a quaint trick of moving his nose when he sniffed. Horrid doggy smell here, said he. You should really keep those terriers of yours in better order. Try sulfur, Strick. But Strickland did not answer. He caught hold of the back of a chair and, without warning, went into an amazing fit of hysterics. It is terrible to see a strong man overtaken with hysteria. Then it struck me that we had fought for Fleet's soul with the silver man in that room and had disgraced ourselves as Englishmen forever. And I laughed and gasped and gurgled just as shamefully as Strickland. While Fleet thought that we had both gone mad, we never told him what we had done. Some years later, 
when Strickland had married and was a church-going member of society for his wife's sake, we reviewed the incident dispassionately, and Strickland suggested that I should put it before the public. I cannot myself see that this step is likely to clear up the mystery, because, in the first place, no one will believe a rather unpleasant story, and, in the second, it is well known to every right-minded man that the gods of the heathen are stone and brass, and any attempt to deal with them otherwise is justly condemned. End of The Mark of the Beast by Rudyard Kipling Thank you for listening. I want to thank uh, Michael for being on um, at the beginning of the show. And I want to thank uh, L. Bachman for coming on and having uh, a wonderful conversation about Anne Rice and, uh, and her own work and uh, everything in between. It was a lot of fun. If you uh, want to get a hold of the show... Actually, before we get into that, let me reiterate. Um, to help, If you want to help out the podcast, the best way to do so is to rate and review on iTunes. iTunes is the motherboard of all podcasting and uh, if you the more ratings and the more reviews we get, the more iTunes will share us with the world and we will find a lot more listeners that way. So please, please uh, go on to your iTunes and rate and review. If you want to get a hold of us, it's easy to do. Just uh, you can email us at uh, where darkness dwell <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself here. You can email us at uh, darknessdwells74 at gmail.com. You can uh, visit the website, which is wheredarknessdwells.com. And there's a there's also a, a Facebook page you can you can like, and that is www.facebook.com slash wheredarknessdwells. And there's also a, a Facebook group that you can join, and there, there's been a little bit of activity in there, so please come in and, and join in. Uh, so uh, we have a lot of really big guests coming up in the future, so I hope you uh, stick around. And uh, on that note, thanks again for listening, and we will see you again next week. Good night. And sweet dreams.